You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, I have planted two fig trees in my life. If you take a right on Taft Street and keep driving before you hit kind of Fargo, you will see on the right the two fig trees that I planted. I'm very proud of these fig trees. Um, we don't live there anymore, but you can still see the fruit of my labor. Um, these were planted about five years ago. They were twigs when I bought them, um, so much so that I called the plant store that I bought them from and complained because I thought they were completely dead. But since then, if, you, if you've been to our house or parked on that street, you had seen this explosion over the years of growth. Um, or right around this time, they explode with leaves and they explode with figs. I'm not kidding. They uh, pretty much through November, there's hundreds of figs produced by these two trees. The trunks have gone from twig to swell to like an elephant's foot of a tree. Um, and so I'm, I'm really proud of them, even though I don't own them anymore. Um, but one night I was taking the trash out, and it was about 11 p.m. Um, on a Sunday night because the trash comes on a Monday morning, and that was my side of the street, so I would take my trash out right there where those two fig trees were. Um, and this was like 11 p.m. Uh, I don't stay up that late anymore, but it was like 11 p.m., and I was taking out the trash cans, and right as I did, I heard this noise in the fig trees, and this woman stepped out from the, the fig trees, and I scared her, and she scared me. And she was holding two handfuls of figs. And she said, I'm sorry, you scared me. Are these your fig trees? And I said, yes, these are my fig trees. <laughs> um, and she told me, she said, I was driving down Taft Street, and I saw how many leaves were on these fig trees, and I turned my car around and parked on the street and said, I have to collect figs from these trees. And so I continued to kind of like, oh, okay, like, that's totally fine. Like, I'm not, you know, you can have as many figs as you want. And she said uh, she was from the Middle East, and her grandfather had the same type of fig tree, and she said, when I saw yours, I had to stop and see if it had fruit, and I had to take some to make whatever fig things she made. Um, this actually happened, right? And of course, um, after my shock and, and kind of like, okay, went away, um, I said, well, well, yeah, go take as many as you want. Like, binge on figs and nostalgia, like at home, as you think about the memories of your grandfather in the Middle East and you eat these figs. And, and Micah can tell you, we never did anything with these figs. We never made a pie. We never ate them. They just, we just watched them kind of fall to the ground. And um, So when it comes to this passage, I feel like I, I was reading it and just like, man, I've actually got experience with like this scenario that this this woman saw the leaves and turned around and came expecting fruit, and lo and behold, there was fruit. Jesus, in a similar way, like sees this tree exploding with leaves. He changes course to go to the tree and to go get fruit to eat. But unlike the girl I caught in my fig tree, this fig tree on the outside that was exploding with leaves was fruitless. A couple things to think about here. One, with Jesus and with the girl in my fig tree, um, this wasn't about the fruit. It actually wasn't the fruit that drew them there, really. For the girl, it was about a memory. It was about nostalgia. She, she had a memory of her grandfather who she hadn't seen in a place far away and thought, eating that will bring me closer to him. For Jesus, it's not about nostalgia. 
Um, but it is about his people. It's about who his people have been made to be, what they're made to do, and how they're made to glorify him and bless the world. And so let's do some of the work here to figure out what Jesus is doing, what he's talking about, because we're going to see the scene with the fig tree is interlaced with this temple narrative. And that's not a coincidence from Mark, the author. It's not a coincidence that this, this happened chronologically to Jesus. This, Mark is more concerned with chronology than any other gospel. So Jesus goes to a temple. He sees the figs. He goes to the temple. We see the figs. So there's an interlaced, connected narrative going on here. And I think the, what we'll find is that the tree and the people are all leaves and no fruit. And so let's, let, let's talk about what's going on. So Jesus, as we read in verse 11, we kind of backed up before the start of this passage in your Bible. It has a heading about the fig tree. But right before that, um, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's come to be crucified. So this actually p- takes place narratively after the triumphal entry, which we'll talk about next week. But Jesus enters Jerusalem to be killed to be crucified, and he goes straight to the temple, and he looks around, and then he departs. And then we see that he goes to this fig tree not producing fruit. He curses it. The next day, he returns to the temple and cleanses the temple by kicking out all the riffraff, and then he returns to the fig tree where he kind of explains something that's going on here. Let's read again in verse 11 just to refresh what what the narrative says in the Word of God. It says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them, he said to them, Is it not written, this is an Isaiah quote, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, so... What is going on here? The question I asked is, I think maybe the apparent reading or the literal reading of this is like, is Jesus losing it in anger here? Is Jesus blowing up in anger? Is he flying off the handle at a fig tree just because he's mad at everything going on? He's afraid to die, so he just loses it at the fig tree. He loses it at the temple. Like, is that what's going on here? I think if we get that reading or if you just kind of read this literally with the fig tree, literally would mean that Jesus is just mad that there's no fruit, right? We get a misunderstanding of what's actually going on here. We get a misunderstanding of the connectivity between the temple and the tree. So Jesus doesn't simply get angry at this particular tree, and he doesn't simply get angry at the people in the temple. He does get angry, but it's not simple anger. So I, I think we need to do some work concerning the things Uh, that Jesus is getting angry about and the manner in which he gets angry about. So if you're taking notes, three things. One, Jesus is slow to get angry. 
it seems from a reading of the passage that he's quick in anger towards a tree and quick in anger towards a temple. That's not what's going on. He's slow to anger. Second, he's justified in his anger, right? Like, if you guys get angry at a tree that doesn't have fruit on it, you, you might not be justified. In our, if I got angry at that, it's like, well, maybe the water, the soil, the sun, like, I don't have that right, but Jesus is justified. We'll show why. And third, his anger is an expression of his love. It's an expression of his love. So first, what do I mean that Jesus is slow to angry, anger? It, it does seem like he's reacting in the moment to the fig tree, right? The answer is that the anger of Jesus in these two scenarios has been building for thousands of years, right? In Genesis, um, not only at the, at the fall where sin is introduced into the world through Adam's sin, um, not only there, but really God tells the father of the nation of Israel, this man named Abraham, that his offspring would bless the entire earth, that they'd be numerous and bless the earth. And then in Exodus, God's people are delivered out of slavery, and God speaks to them through Moses on the Mount Sinai, and he tells them that they would be a kingdom of priests that will bless the nations with God's law and his justice. The Old Testament is filled with story after story of Israel being told that they are God's people, that they have been given God's holy law, um, and that they are given these things in order to bless the world. And in the Old Testament, we also see story after story of Israel failing to bless the nations, instead repeatedly being prone to selfishness, to the worship of false gods, and prone to sin. So this has been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years by the time Jesus meets this fig tree in the temple. And, and what's really happening is that God has been exceedingly patient with Israel. He's given them kings that they asked for, that he's given them freedom and laws that they've asked for. He's given them victories that they desperately needed to survive. And over and over again, they're failing to bear the type of fruit, to be the type of people that God has asked them to be, not just so that they would be his people, but that they, so that they would bless the nations. So what is happening with the fig isn't in a vacuum, right? The fig represents God's people who for thousands of years have been waving their leaves saying, look, we're God's people. Look at us. We're God's people. And yet the closer you get to them, the closer you look, the less you realize that there is, there's no fruit here. They're not obedient to God's commandments. They're not worshiping him as their true God. And therefore, they're definitely not blessing the nations. What we might take as an outburst has been this steady, stable simmer of God's anger for thousands of years due to sin. Second, God is justified in his anger, which means he's, he's not just the angry guy who isn't getting his way. God is justified in his anger. The nation of Israel, as a result of kind of their sin over and over and over again, goes into exile, which means they're ruled by another nation, Babylon. And then God sends these prophets to come along and speak his words to the people, calling them to repent of their failure, sin, and idolatry, and calling them to produce, back, to, to produce fruit, calling them back to being a blessing for all nations. Right, Hosea 9, and really, if you read Hosea 9, it, it's got inflammatory language of God's anger towards the people's sin. This is what it says in verse 10. 
Uh, this is a prophet writing to Israel in the exile. He says this, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But they came and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they love. Israel's glory shall fly away like a bird. So these people of God here in the temple, when Jesus goes there, they've heard the words of the prophets. They've heard these words like those from Hosea, and they've done nothing. They've done nothing. Jesus sees it in the temple. He uses a fig tree as a metaphor for the nation of Israel, and then he does what? He goes and cleans house in the temple. The temple, he says, is supposed to be the house of God. And Jesus says, you're doing business here, you're selling birds, you're changing money. And look at verse 7. Jesus recalls Isaiah 56, which I pointed out when we read it. It says, this is my house, and it has, it has been called to be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Jesus says, you've corrupted the place that was meant to be a wellspring of fresh water and blessing for the world. You've done what with it? You've made it a place of business? This is shocking. The people are astonished. He's saying, you people of Israel, you are all leaf and no fruit. You are all leaf and no fruit. Third, let me tell you why this is loving, why God's anger here is a loving expression of anger. A lot of this thought is from a theologian named Michael Reeves uh, in a book called Delighting in the Trinity, which I love and highly recommend. Um, we tend to think of God's love on a spectrum, right? So, or, or not, maybe not God's love, but we think of love and anger on a spectrum, right? So we think love's over here and anger's over here and neither can coexist. We think um, if you're loving... Or if you're loving, then you, you aren't angry. And if you're angry, you're not being loving. And for us as imperfect humans, I think when we are quick to be angry, when we are quick to, be, uh, to blow up at some sort of scenario, um, for us as imperfect humans, we're not entirely justified in the amount of anger that we produce, which really does mean we're not being loving in the way that we've been called to be. But for us, like, to understand God's love, we actually have to emotionally kind of graduate and view God as not angry or loving, but to understand that biblically, when God expresses anger, it's an expression of his love. So here's what I mean. Like, this is an elevated view of God's perfect emotion. So if we are reflecting God, then we, uh, we are image bearers, right? In our emotion, we are image bearers. So everything we can emote comes from the one whom, whom's image we bear, whose image we bear. Um, so love and anger are imperfectly expressed by us, but in God, they're perfect. So what does that mean? Well, because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that's the first key to unlocking. How do we understand that God is love? God is love because he's in a relationship of love. And so what does love do? What does a loving God who's in a relationship of love uh, for eternity, who's been a father loving a son through the love of the Spirit, what does that love do when it meets evil? What does love do when, it, when love meets evil? Well, love gets mad. 
When love meets evil, love gets mad. When evil is when sin enters the world, right? Evil is when death enters the world. Evil is when God's people fall victim to sin and death. Evil is when they lose their ability to love and therefore lose their ability to become beacons of God's love for the nation because of their sin. And so faced with this evil, God gets mad because he is loving when love faces evil, love gets mad. You get that? Like, God loves his people so much that he is angry with their sin to a degree that he curses a tree for its failure to produce fruit. And he gets in the temple and he expresses his anger at the corruption that's dripping in the walls and tables of the temple. And so for the tree and for the temple, Jesus says, this all has to come down. It's evil, it's diseased, it's marred with sin. It all has to come down. In, uh, in Leviticus, which, which is largely a, just a narration of the holy laws of Israel, um, in chapter 14, there, is, there are rules for cleaning a house. It's called laws for cleaning a house. Um, and if a person has leprosy, the priest would go to the house and they would observe and just, they would just look and see how bad the disease was. And then in chapter 14, um, it would say after a certain amount of time, the priest would return to the house, and if the leprosy had spread to other people or even to the bricks of the house, then they would tear everything down all the way to the foundation. This was God's law for cleaning disease in a home, which is why we read verse 11, right? Jesus goes and observes the temple. He just looks at it. He sees the disease, he leaves, he curses the fig metaphorically, and then he returns to the temple and sees what? It's in the walls. The disease has spread. This all has to come down. And so, and, and we get this right, because Jesus is going to, we're going to unpack a little bit of what temple is coming down in this narrative, but this is where I think it gets exciting, because uh, we're thinking of God's wrath, Right? Um, what is God going to do with his anger here? What has he come here to do? Remember, God's been slow to anger. He's justified in his anger, and his anger is love. His anger is not awkwardly beside his love. It's not oddly in conflict with his love. His anger is his love. So what is he going to do with it? What does God do with anger towards sin? Well, Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Or put simply by Paul to the Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's wrath is poured on Christ at the cross. His ang what does God do with his anger? He places it on himself, on Christ, on the cross. 
In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. The temple does come down, but it's Jesus' own body, not the building that is crushed. See, God doesn't just pour out his wrath on Christ and say, okay, that's the end of it, right? That is the payment for sin, but it's just not the only part of his plan because it's not a plan just for payment. It's a plan for redemption, The plan is to restore and recreate the people of God, not curse and abandon them. Why? So that they might bless the nations. Here's what Jesus gives the disciples when they notice the withered tree as we continue in verse 20. Jesus says this, they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. We see the roots. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe it and that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And so, the fig is cursed way down to its roots, but a new tree will grow from the stump of its roots. The temple is destroyed at Jesus' crucifixion, right? It's symbolically represented by the tearing of a curtain in the dwelling place of God. Well, the new tree that grows is the new people of God, those who are saved by faith in Christ himself. That's why Jesus is talking about great faith here faith to move mountains. Jesus says, have faith. A miracle of salvation is coming to you. The new temple built up is the new people of God, the church, those who are indwelt by the very presence of God, the Holy Ghost. And get this, by the Holy Ghost himself, we now produce fruit, right? Galatians 3, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why do we have fruit? What is the fruit for? It's the same as it's always been, to bless the nations. Jesus has said himself, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The writers of the New Testament will go on to say, our unity, our love, our peace, our patience, our gentleness, our kindness, our goodness, our self-control, that is how the world will know there's something different about the new temple and the new tree of God, the people of God, the church. Romans 11 uses tree language still, right? Not only is this new tree sprouting up from the stump of the tree of Israel, not only is it full of those in Israel who have been saved by Christ, but we also have a new branch grafted in, the Gentiles, all those who are non-Israeli. It's good news for us who are not of Jewish origin in the room. The new tree and the new temple are for the nations, Salvation offered through Christ is offered to all nations through us, the church, the new tree, and the new temple. temple. How do we do this? Well, we wave our leaves. First, (laughs) we display our leaves. We attract the world by unity, by love, by peace, by community, by truth. And then when the world leans in and gets close to the church, 
they'll see that we aren't all just leaves, but we're, we have fruit. It's real. It's, it's tangible. We can pick it and touch it and eat it. Fruit is produced by a real relationship of faith with a real God of the Bible who is indwelling us in a real spiritual way and producing real tangible fruit. So I think with this responsibility to bless the nations comes a warning for us, and it's a warning that, that implores us to kind of examine ourselves individually and collectively, right? Like as a people, or as, like, as you're thinking about this this week, maybe even pray, like, Lord, am I all leaves and no fruit? Like we need to examine ourselves and answer ourselves with sobriety, and as a congregation, we should be on guard and highly suspicious of anything that makes us, the people of God, seem less like a dwelling place of peace for the nations and more like a den of robbers. Are we perfect? No. We, we don't make that claim. Will we produce perfect fruit? No. We don't make that claim. But God is perfect, and God will produce fruit in us and for us to bless the nations, starting with blessing one another and moving towards blessing our neighbors and our city and the world. We can pray to live into this. We can pray to produce more fruit and better fruit. We can pray that when people come close to us, that they would see and taste and feast on the fruit of the Spirit of God. We can pray that when people enter our spaces or our homes, that they would experience prayer and healing and peace for the nations. And it's then that we can point to why, who is the foundation of the cornerstone of the new temple, who is the root of the, the shoot of the stump of Israel, the shoot of Jesse, as Isaiah says. It's Christ himself. He's given us his spirit to give us fruit. Christ loves us so much so that he died for us, so much so that God's wrath is poured out on him, not us. And he rose for us, and he sent his spirit to sanctify us, and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a fruit-bearing people? Would no one see our leaves of the way we live our lives and come close and say, there's no fruit here? Lord, we ask you to use your spirit to sanctify us, sober us, and convict us of where we're not showing fruit, but at the same time, we invite your spirit to give us a bountiful harvest of good works, good deeds, not to save us, but to show the world who you are. Lord, I pray that if any are examining kind of their lives this week or even this morning and feeling like, I just don't feel like I'm, I feel like I might be all leaves and no fruit. I don't feel like I'm living into who I am. Lord, would you, by your spirit, send peace right now? Would you say, you are mine? I will do a work in you. I'm not done doing a work in you. The type of fruit you want to produce, I want to produce in you. Ask. Ask him to produce the type of fruit that when the world, when the neighbors, when anybody would come close and see and, and pick and eat would say, 
this is the fruit of God. And if they reject us on that basis, Lord, then, then we've suffered for your name. And we count ourselves more and more in and with the sufferings of Christ, our Savior, and we are sanctified and blessed because of it. Lord, would you comfort us by your word? Would you let us feast on your body and blood as we approach the day where we observe your death and the day where we observe and remember your resurrection and where we worship greatly because of those things, knowing where your anger has been placed and knowing where your love is being felt and shown. We need you, Lord. Would you help us? In your name we pray. Amen.